0: The Inland Northwest Artisan Grains podcast chronicles the emergence of landrace, heritage, and other unique grains in the local food landscape. We are your hosts, Allie Schulteis
1: and Colette Phelps. Join us as we talk to farmers, millers, bakers, and brewers about their journey into the world of artisan grains. This podcast is a project of University of Idaho Extension's Northern District Community Food Systems Program.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of the Inland Northwest Artisan Grains podcast, second season, Field to Flour. This has been such a fun season. A special thanks to our listeners who have journeyed with us as we traveled the Northwest talking with farmers, millers, and bakers working with Artisan Grains.
1: Today we have a special follow-up episode with Brett Stevenson from Hillside Grain in Sun Valley, Idaho. When we talked to Brett back in January on our first episode of this season... Brett told us her story of establishing and operating an on-farm mill that specializes in high extraction flour.
0: We will also be joined by Tanner Van Slyke as he and Brett talk about their newest endeavor, an on-farm bakery. Tanner is the highly talented head baker at Hillside Bread, having earned experience baking at the Moscow Food Co-op, the Yellowstone Club, Acme Bakehouse, and Kin, a restaurant in Boise, Idaho.
1: Thanks again for joining us for this final episode of season two. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Brett Stevenson and Tanner Van Slyke. Well, welcome to today's episode. I'm so excited, Brett and Tanner, to have you on. We started out the Field to Flower season with an interview with Brett about Hillside Grain, and we're so excited to be wrapping up the season with you and learning about some of the changes that have happened in the last seven to eight months. So, just to start, Brett, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about Hillside Grain?
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Colette. I'm Brett Stevenson. Um, I started Hillside Grain in Idaho a couple years ago, and we are longtime grain farmers in Idaho. We're actually celebrating our 50th—my dad's celebrating his 50th anniversary this year of farming here. Yeah, and, and most recently we added on a
1: wholesale bakery. So when we last talked to you, Brad, you were milling and selling your flour as far away as Utah. And you gave us a little hint on the side that the bakery was coming. So could you just tell us a little bit about how you decided to go from having a mill and selling flour to having an on-farm bakery?
2: Yeah, I think it was part of the vision from the beginning. Uh, I I would say that quite loosely because the vision changes and morphs and stuff. But I think the idea of growing, milling and baking and basically completing the full circle was something that has always been super intriguing and exciting to me. And I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for that. There's not a lot of that going on in the country. And I think people are pretty excited for Local products and transparency, and so it's sort of an opportunity to carry our grain that we have been growing for so long all the way through to a finished product. Um, in addition to that, it also is sort of somewhat of a kind of test kitchen opportunity for us to advise our flour customers. So regionally focused as far as flour milling goes and flour sales, and like we discussed in the first podcast, it's a kind of a unique flour because it's high extraction and it's fresh and a lot of bakers haven't had the opportunity to experience that kind of flour so with a baker in-house we can also try to help advise and coach bakers that are interested in exploring different grains and high extraction flours and specifically using our flours Um, so those are kind of the motivators and also I think the other big thing is just having more good bread I feel like there's you know, throughout the country, kind of a a real lack of good bread. So we want to be able to contribute
1: to the good bread supply. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that the good the good bread supply. The so,
2: good bread supply. Yeah, <laughs> I,
1: I think you're right that more people are searching out bakeries. And you know, years ago, almost every community had at least one bakery. And now, I get asked, "Oh, does does this community have a bakery?" And I'm like, "Oh, no." which seems really amazing. Even some areas that have had a pretty big, like farm to table restaurant movement over the years are just recently getting really good bakeries.
2: Mm -hmm, I think that's exactly right. And the idea, you know, I I apologize if I said this before, but it's so interesting too, because I feel like most of the other aspects of our food system have kind of Gone through some pretty significant changes in like the past decade or so, whether it's meat or dairy or your produce, but grain is kind of this new, um, this frontier that's sort of ripe to to be kind of reevaluated and um, focusing more on varieties and freshness and you know artisan style and um, kind of a, a health resurrection about about the, the good the good bread supply because it has gotten so centralized and just kind of away from maybe what we should be eating and growing and processing. So it's kind of cool to be working at all angles of that to restore it in a way that I think is good for farmers and for the land and for the consumers.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and we'll definitely... Dive deeper into that as we go, but first we want to give Tanner the opportunity to introduce himself. So, Tanner, if you could please just introduce yourself, give us a little bit of your background and how you became connected with Hillside Grain.
3: Hi, I'm Tanner Vanslage. I have been baking bread professionally for about nine and a half years. I actually, started baking in Moscow. Funny enough, I was a student at University of Idaho. I took a semester off and got a job baking at the local co-op up there. And yeah, I really fell in love with it. And so I've kind of just stuck with it ever since. And it's taken me a handful of different places. I worked at Acme Big Shop in Boise after I left Moscow. From there, I went on to the Yellowstone Club and I built their bread and binwiserie program pretty much from the ground up. And similar situation where they were starting sort of a privatized wholesale operation and I had the opportunity to kind of set that up for them, you know, also with an emphasis on local grain and high extraction flour, particularly Coruscant uh, or Kamut wheat. There's a lot of that growing throughout Montana, as I'm sure a lot of people know. But yeah, then I moved back to Boise in 2020 and was working for a restaurant in Boise called Ken. And we started sourcing flour from Brett. And I first caught wind of her project and was at the Yellowstone club. And, thought it was really cool what she was doing, you know, being from Idaho, you know, it was great to see that someone was actually taking, you know, all the wheat that we grow here and milling it into something, you know, amazing like high extraction flour, but then also doing it in a way that was very thoughtful and sustainable. So yeah, I got connected to Brett that way probably initially through Instagram, but then we started sourcing flour from her again. And then I don't know, I think it was maybe October of 2020, when she first mentioned starting a wholesale bakery here. And so her and I have kind of, you know, as time has allowed, we kind of chipped away at things. And then by maybe April of this year, we were finally able to get our commercial license and kind of get things off the ground. And yeah, it's been, it's been a really cool process.
2: If I can just chime in there, it was sort of funny in my flower deliveries, because my deliveries, I just drop off and say, hi, how's it going, on? you know? And then Heather, Tanner and I would sort of bat this idea around <laughs> like an hour later. Got, Tanner, I got to go like, get my other deliveries. <laughs> so we definitely had these like flower exchanges where the ideas and the vision was <laughs> kind of percolating and building.
3: It's minutes in the Whole Foods parking lot talking yeah. about then, exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so did you,
1: as you were planning kind of go into design and thinking about what you wanted that bakery to look like. Was that co-developed between the two of you? Sort
2: of. It was more like I was trying to figure out like, what's my bandwidth? How much am I going to be able to really pull this off? And then also kind of talking to Tanner about like, what are his intentions and plans and is this all going to jive? It was more like that. And I I think uh, for me, I kept thinking like, Wholesale and having it down on the actually on the ranch, um, I couldn't quite wrap my brain around the retail bakery storefront. That felt like way too much to take on. Tanner might have that part of his vision at some point <laughs> evolve into that. But um, yeah, that was kind of what, what was going through my mind at least. So,
1: what does yep. the bakery look like?
3: It's it's definitely a wholesale bakery. Um, I have a lot of people who think that. Just because, you know, it is by definition a bakery that it's, you know, what you picture in terms of sort of a cafe storefront. And it's very much not that, but it's perfect for a wholesale production environment. It's a large shop that I believe was originally intended for tractor maintenance that Brett's family acquired. And when they first, when Brett and Todd first showed me the space, I was like, "Yeah, this is this is perfect." You know, it's basically just one large room with really high ceilings. That's what you mainly need for wholesale production is a lot of space. And yeah, I mean, it's in a beautiful part of the farm, just south of Bellevue, Idaho, and you know, it kind of sits right there on the edge of all the wheat fields. And yeah, it's great. And I appreciate the fact that it actually has natural light because I've worked in spaces in the past that were you know, in a basement or had little to no windows. And so like, you know, being in a space that has natural light and lots of windows has been great. And it definitely makes for some really nice sunrises in the morning.
1: sounds beautiful. Brett, what kind of improvements did you have to do to this maintenance building to actually move from a maintenance building to a commercial wholesale bakery?
2: Most of it was a lot of cleaning. (laughs) Um it was in pretty good shape and there wasn't a, a lot actually. It's a pretty simple like Tanner kind of described, it's a really sort of simple space. So we just got some kind of your basic startup baking equipment specifically a um deck oven, a bread oven from Italy, and then a mixer and a few smaller things. But that's that's kind of it. It's pretty straightforward. You know, we did have some issues with the power. We don't have three phase there, so we had to convert uh, the oven to uh, make it work in a single phase situation. So that was kind of the big thing. And then we had to add another little hand washing station for the health department. But that's that's about it. It's it's pretty nice. I I love the fact that um, our farm crew is kind of always in passing through the area. So Tanner and I got a kind of pass off the extra loaves when they come through it's kind of it's super cool for them i think to like swing by grab a fresh loaf of bread from the wheat that we're growing there um but those are kind of our only stopper buyers
0: (laughs) probably the most deserving
2: stopper buyers though too (laughs)
0: right yeah, talk about full circle, right? doing so your sad. specific thing in the field. And then it's like, oh, this is what it becomes afterward. You get to see yeah. it all the way yeah. through the end. And Tanner, can you tell us kind of what the production scale looks like right now? How many loaves are you baking and where are you distributing to and stuff like that?
3: Yeah, so we started out pretty small in terms of production, but it's definitely like growing pretty steadily just week to week. I'd say... Right now, on average, we're probably putting out anywhere from 100 to 160 loaves a day. And that's split between, you know, several different varieties of bread and products that we're making. But yeah, we have wholesale accounts with a handful of restaurants in the area, as well as we just this week, we just started supplying bread to the Atkinson's grocery store location in Haley. Yeah, we're doing bread for... Atkinson's um, Café Della, which is a great kind of local cafe slash market in Haley. Then we're also doing bread for the Valley Club, which is a private golf community up here. We're doing bread at Ketchum Kitchens, which is a sort of Williams-Sonoma-esque store in uh, Ketchum in the mall. And then um, we have been doing some kind of one-off things for a restaurant called The Cubby. And it just kind of keeps growing. I even had a guy who stopped by earlier today to talk to me about a wine bar that he's opening in Haley, and he's wanting bread for that. Oh, and one other place is um, a wine bar in Ketchum called Scout, doing all the baguettes for their charcuterie boards, some sourdough loaves for their tartines. uh, And then they're also selling bread retail in the shop. So it's been cool having new businesses like that that have been using our bread from the beginning and are also kind of giving us a lot of exposure and then also exposing a lot of people in the community to both the bakery, but then also Hillside Grain. Because I think, you know, like most Americans, we're very accustomed to white commodity flour. And so I think it's great for people to be exposed to breads that taste like wheat. Because I think a lot of us, you know, even me, for example, who grew up eating Wonder Bread and, you know, stuff like that, you don't really associate Wheat with having any sort of inherent flavor, you know, bread in most American diets, bread is really just a vehicle for whatever else you're eating. And so, to have breads that are made with breads high extraction flour, you actually can taste the grain itself, and it has it has a lot more like terroir and flavor to it. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very very cool operation, and I feel very lucky to be a part of it.
1: Can you describe the different types of bread products that you're making? What they are and what some of those processes are that you're using.
3: Yeah, so obviously everything is using hillsong green flour, so everything is made with high extraction flour, meaning that some of that bran and germ are being retained in the flour rather than it being sifted out completely, as with you know traditional store bought white flour. And then on top of that, everything is naturally leavened so what that means basically i'm using a levan or you know a sourdough starter to leaven all of the bread and various products that we're making which i think adds a lot of flavor but then also makes things more digestible and then started out doing kind of a country style sourdough so we call that like a high extraction bread flour and then whole wheat flour and then also some of brett's barley flour and then that's a natural 11 loaf. So it's literally just flour, water, and salt. And then from there, we kind of started working with baguettes. And it took me a while to kind of land on the blend. Uh, using a combination of Brett's all-purpose flour, which is around 10% protein, and her bread flour, which is 12%. Using a 50-50 blend of those two, I was able to get a really nice final result from the baguettes. And then we're also doing a roasted potato ciabatta, which is a higher hydration dough that has uh, roasted Idaho cold potatoes some uh, olive oil. And then we're doing a maple oat porridge loaf, which is basically a whole grain sourdough that has whole grain oats that have been cooked down into a porridge along with a little bit of organic maple syrup. And then that porridge gets folded into the dough. And then let's see what else. We're doing a walnut raisin sourdough. that has got a little bit of raw Idaho honey in it. And then more recently, we started working on brioche. So I've been doing brioche pollen loaves, which are kind of a rectangular Loaf. The Pullman loaf is a same after the pan, which is essentially modeled after a train car. So it's a metal pan that has a lid that slides on top of it. So you get this kind of perfect cuboid loaf. And then we've also been doing brioche buns for a handful of places. So yeah, I think starting out with just the baguettes and the sourdough loaves, we kind of have, over the last couple months, things have been steadily growing and expanding um, as we have different wholesale clients who request things or, you know, when and where time allows, I have a chance to R&D things.
1: That sounds amazing.
2: Again, I I just have to add a little footnote because Tanner's so talented. Word travels fast. We did our first delivery at Atkinson's, the local grocery store, at the beginning of this week. And granted, it was a very small delivery, but we hadn't even left the market and all of his loaves had sold.
1: (laughs) They're all gone. (laughs) He's a very talented baker. Wow. It sounds like it, all those different varieties and incorporating all of the different local products in there. I, I've never had anything like a loaf of bread that has an oat porridge incorporated into it. I mean, it just sounds really amazing.
2: They are. They're, they're really good loaves. <laughs> <laughs> Tara will be modest, but I, could, I can tell you. <laughs> they're delicious.
3: Yeah, I would just say I'm my own harshest critic, but yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the product itself, I like think I think that things have improved steadily week over week, you know, and that's kind of the fun thing with bread baking is you can make the same recipe every single day, but you're going to get different results, you know, depending on a hundred different variables, things like water temperature, air temperature, humidity, the inoculation rate of your starter, all these different things. And so it becomes this game of kind of, navigating those different variables and planning or adjusting things accordingly. And so, I always feel like there's room for improvement, but I am I am very happy with the product that we've been putting out.
0: I would like to hear about this research and development process of testing these new grains that are different varieties that Brett is producing. Tanner, what is that process like of trying to figure out these ratios and Uh, if a variety is a good fit for a certain product, can you explain that a little bit? And then
2: most of like the new varieties are in the ground and I'm just looking at the combine now we're, we're just, we're starting right this afternoon (laughs) and we will probably be the last to go. So with that in mind, like Tanner can explain, you know, his R and D with the varieties he has now, but as far as like the perennial wheat, we haven't, We haven't milled any of that yet. And some of the different colors, we've got like these multicolor varieties from the Bread Lab, but that's all coming up.
3: Yeah. And then we get to start the R&D process all over again. (laughs) I mean, R&D was interesting. I think I had a good crash course with it when I was working at Ken. I was doing bread for the restaurant there with Brett's Flour, and then we were also kind of incorporating it into the various like pastries and desserts that we were producing for the menus. Then transitioning from a restaurant setting to a wholesale setting, it kind of required further R and um, I think one of the biggest things with high extraction flour is or really whole grain flour in general is that it's going to absorb more water. And so that's definitely something to account for. You know, oftentimes if you have a whole wheat bread, that's very like dense and dry it's because you can't really just take your bread recipe that worked great with white flour and then make it in the exact same ratios with whole grain flour and expect the same result. Yeah, also accounting for fermentation too. I think in most cases, whole grain flours are going to fermer- like ferment like at a different rate. So that was definitely part of the process was getting those hydration ratios down and then figuring out fermentation time. And then of course, like that fermentation time, you know, between when we started and you know, February, March, like first kind of started doing R&D for the bakery to now where it's super hot, you know, those fermentation times change pretty drastically with the seasons. But yeah, that R&D process is, I don't know, for me, it's kind of my favorite part, honestly, is just that the experimentation, like that's, that's really where like the kind of creativity and problem solving come in. And that it keeps me on my toes and definitely required me to like approach things a little differently than I had with flowers I've used in the past. You know, even to the point where I finally learned how to use Microsoft Excel for the first time in my life for the sake of keeping things organized and being able to kind of, you know, adjust ratios on the fly, whether that's hydration percentage or the percentage of uh, Levan or sourdough starter that's going into something. but. Yeah, I mean, it, for people that are using high extraction flour, whether it's Brett's flour or from another miller in the country, like, all I can say is be patient and don't give up.
2: You rewards are
3: worth it, right, Tanner? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's definitely worth it. yeah, I think a lot of put off by that, you know, they make something a few times and it doesn't turn out the way it did with their King Arthur flour or whatever they were using before. And then they get frustrated and want to just give up, which I know, you know, from Breton, that's definitely something she's encountered, I think, with with a lot of these people that she's brought flour to. And then, you know, she's been very hopeful that they were going to use her flour. And I think the R&D process is something that I think deters a lot of people, whether those are existing bakeries or restaurants or whatever, because you know, they don't want to take the time to really work through those kinks. And, you know, they have a recipe that works with a given flour and they don't want to change that, which on one hand, I totally understand. But on another hand, like when you're in a position where you have this very unique opportunity to use flour, that's being, you know, not only grown, but milled in your state. Like, I think regardless of the R&D that needs to go into that, I think it's worth the effort, you know, because one thing you'll notice, and I think anyone who's worked a lot with flour from various places like one thing you'll notice is that in almost every case you can find flour that's being made with grain that was grown in your state but that grain was most likely sent out of state for milling or you can find flour that's being milled in your state but in most cases they're using grain that was brought in from elsewhere for example the flour that i was getting in montana was great and it was all montana grain but they were shipping that grain from montana to texas for milling and then shipping the flour from texas back to montana for distribution so i think that's one thing that makes hillside grain very unique is that you're getting grain that was both grown and milled right here in idaho so i think at least from my perspective any sort of investment in time or expense to r&d with that flour i think is well worth it
2: if there's a chance you a decent chance i hope that your final product is going to be better i feel like it's well worth a little time to tweak your formula and end up with a better product. Um, sometimes I think well, bakers are so busy. They're not willing to like Tanner's suggesting us, to take that time. But if it actually results in an improved product, it's probably well worth the time investment. But Tanner, I think you mentioned this somewhat recently. That there are a lot of variables with the temperature, And then just in general, more hydration for high extraction flour, but the flour, the bread flour that you're primarily using, it has been relatively consistent due to the tempering that we're doing in the mill. Is that right?
3: Yeah. I mean, I know we've had some people who'd probably disagree with me, but from my perspective, as someone who's using it every single day and using it in high quantities and not using anything else, like I'd say the flour has been incredibly consistent in terms of you know, protein content and moisture content and all of that, you know, I think when things go wrong or things don't turn out, I think a lot of people's knee jerk reaction is to like blame the flour. And in most cases, at least in my experience, it's not the flour, you know, it's something needs to be adjusted in terms of your process or your technique. It's often user error rather than, you know, a change in protein content or the flour itself.
2: Too is I feel like there's a little bit of an onus on us to educate the consumers about what Tanner's describing because we have the same, albeit it's a different circumstance in the in the mill where we have variabilities that we can't always account for, and then same within the field, frankly, like the soil profile is going to change throughout one field, so you might get varying levels of protein in one crop. And so I think again, kind of what is saying about we're we're so trained to expect this white bread with no flavor. We're also trained to expect the exact same bread over and over and over again. And I think some of these craft industries have done a good job paving the way to try to retrain consumers that in the natural world, there's so many variables you're never going to get in your garden. You're never going to get two strawberries that taste the exact same. Well, your bread is going to, it's going to change. And that's actually really cool. Like to embrace those variables and those changes and those differences, because it's coming from a living, growing thing, and then you have heat and humidity, and yeah, different minerals and vitamins um, that are either there or not there, or, uh, in an excess or um, uh, anyway. So it's it's just kind of a an interesting exercise in that sense too. Yeah, you know, we're producing things that change and shift, but also trying to explain to the customer that that's life. <laughs> that's part of <laughs> that's part of the beauty of this. Like embrace it. <laughs> we do. We love it. <laughs>
1: And is that variability also part of what you're able then to communicate to the home baker, or the commercial baker that is buying your flour and kind of relating your experience with your products to their experience?
2: Yeah, I think that's the case. And I'm I'm just a home baker level. And so when it gets too technical, I'm Tanner, Tanner, <laughs> you're the guy. <laughs> How can we
1: resolve?
3: Yeah, uh, I think even just using store-bought flour, you know, there's a tremendous amount of variability. But then when you start working with whole grain flours or high extraction flours, that adds kind of another layer of difficulty or unpredictability in the sense that whole grains have tremendous effects on the rate of fermentation. And so when you're working with whole grain flours or high extraction flours, you're going to see a change in the rate at which things rise or the level of gluten development And so it's tricky, but I think that's part of what makes it really rewarding when it turns out well. For example, like the whole grain in most wheat varietals is rich with a certain enzyme called beta amylase, which actually acts as a sort of shortcut for the yeast in their their enzymatic processes. And so that's one of the reasons that like, you know, you might make a loaf with white flour and it takes, say, two or three hours to rise, but then you make it with high extraction or whole grain flour and it takes half that time you know, and that could have been that you used warmer water or you used more starter. But in most cases, it has to do with the fact that the whole grain is giving the yeast more of that food that they need essentially to um, work more efficiently. Those are things that I do my best to communicate to other bakers, whether they're home bakers or professionals, you know, but it's really something as much as you can put into words, it's really something that you just have to learn through feeling and trial and error. And I think that's kind of the beauty in it, at least for me. That
0: was going to be my next question is, how do you learn to balance all these variables and you know, produce a consistently good product, even if it looks a little different or is a little flatter? You know, As long as it tastes delicious, in our experience, that's the most important thing. But it sounds like it's just a lot of trial and error. Were there other bakers that have assisted you throughout this process? Or maybe earlier on in your baking career?
3: Yeah. um, When I worked at the Moscow Co-op, for example, I think a lot of us were students in various stages of financial debt. (laughs) So for the most part, you know, everyone I worked with there, you know, we were just doing the job day to day. Um, So when I would ask questions, different things like, why do we auto lease, you know, why do we do things this way? And, you know, and sorry, auto lease is basically where you mix water and flour and allow the flour to be hydrated in the absence of salt. And so that essentially allows the dough to form more cohesive gluten matrices, which salt is something that kind of obstructs that. And so to get really good development in your dough, you want to auto it. But yeah, so I would have all these questions, and no one really had convincing answers for me. And so then I, I had some friends who were chefs who gave me a book called On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee, and there's a great chapter in there about bread not only the history of bread as a food, but also the science behind it. And so that was kind of my first deep dive into understanding like the physiochemical side of bread baking. And then I went on to Acne Bake Shop and Mike Runswold who uh, owns and operates Acne, is a tremendously talented baker. And he, like me, always had made a point to develop more of that scientific understanding of things. And so he was great at helping me kind of understand things from that perspective. Or if I had questions, he would point me in the right direction. And then, yeah, when I was at the Yellowstone Club, I was the head baker. And so it was suddenly like I didn't really have that echo chamber or that support system when I had questions or issues. And, you know, at that point, I started looking and kind of relying more on my books and, you know, various bakers on Instagram who were kind enough to give me any sort of insight but yeah, I mean I, I don't I don't know. It's not it's not something that you just figure out, I guess. Like you do learn more and more and more, but it's it's always this kind of constant process of, you know, learning and then relearning and then unlearning, you know, and it's gonna change from every bakery you work in or every different type of flour that you use. And I think that's one thing for a lot of people that's very frustrating, you know, and it's frustrating for me at times as well, but you have to kind of learn to find that beauty in the chaos, and you do your best to account for those variables. But some days, like, you know, you're gonna make mistakes or things just aren't in your favor. And that's just, you know, like Brett said, that's, that's life. So
2: it seems to me that it's like this beautiful blend of science and art and some luck, some fluke. Yeah. <laughs> Toss on top.
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely that for sure. You know, and I was a ceramics major in college. And so I think that there was this kind of thread that ran between ceramics and bread making, at least for me. And so, yeah, I I think that is a perfect way to put it. It is very much a blend of science and art, Um, you know, and you don't need to have that scientific understanding to make good bread. But I think if you want things to be consistent and you want to be able to make bread on a large scale, the scientific understanding definitely helps.
1: Brett, do you see that? When you look at your entire system, that it's a blend of science and art from growing the grain in the field to taking it through the milling process and then into the baking, a continuum?
2: Yeah, definitely flat, that's, that's funny. I always think of that as describing what tanner does, but no, you're exactly right. It <laughs> kind of applies through the whole the whole system, and a lot of a lot of mother nature mixed in there, especially on the farming end of things. Absolutely. One other question I have for you, Tanner. I come across a lot of bakers (laughs) that are kind of latched onto this high protein flour. Like they they are adamant that they need a high protein flour. And it seems like you're able to, because we do, we have a, our highest is between 12 and 13% protein. And then we also have, like you mentioned, an all purpose, which is more like, to all purposes, or they're more like around 10. It seems like you're able to produce some pretty remarkable loaves with that mid protein.
3: Yeah, I think bakers oftentimes, like, I don't know if we're really trained this way, or if it's something that just becomes ingrained in us over years of working in bakeries, but we do get very hung up on protein content, you know, and I think a lot of the products that, you know, I had been trained to make. With a high-gluten flour, say something that's around 14% protein, I'm able to get the same or even a better result with the bread flour you're producing, which is you know, 12% protein. And so I think things like bagels and brioche, which you would typically make with a high-gluten flour, they tend to turn out even better, in my opinion, using you know, your bread flour at 12% protein. And I think part of it is learning how to build strength into the dough beyond the mixer. So whether that's giving the dough folds in turns throughout bulk fermentation or pre shaping the loaves or, you know, there's a lot of different approaches, but I feel like much in the same way that we have people that are always asking about double O flour and feel like they can't make pasta or pizza with anything that's not double O, you know, there's a lot of people who feel like you can't make bagels or brioche without high gluten flour. And you know, from what I've seen over my last four months of working with your flour on a daily basis, it's definitely not the case. It just takes a little more time and patience to get a better product.
2: That's what Dr. Stephen Jones puts up post on the Bread Labs Instagram feed occasionally, suggesting to bakers that they kind of loosen up on this obsession with the high-protein flour and saying that it's unnecessary, which is, is kind of cool to hear Tanner's experience. And that's, that's kind of what Dr. Jones says a
3: lot too, like this obsession with high protein is a little misguided. Mm, yeah,
1: I agree. Unnecessary. Does high yeah, protein think... correlate with high gluten? Uh, Obviously I'm not a baker, so I don't know these yeah. things.
3: <laughs> yeah. In, in most instances, yeah. I mean, it's, it's two terms for the same thing essentially, because in wheat flour, there's two proteins, essentially there's uh, glutenin and gliadin. And so then when you mix flour into water, once those proteins are exposed to water, those two proteins actually combine to form gluten. And so protein content is typically referring to the content of both glutenin and gliadin in the flour. And various grains or various types of wheat have varying proportions of glutenin and gliadin. But yeah, typically high gluten and high protein are more or less, you know, two terms for the same thing.
2: And the source of that protein is nitrogen in the soil. So it just puts a lot of pressure on farmers if they need to meet certain protein specs to apply nitrogen fertilizer. So if we kind of back away from this protein obsession, it puts less pressure on farmers to apply nitrogen fertilizer. Interesting. We can get yeah, nitrogen yeah, in the soil other ways, like through crop rotation and rotating with legumes, and that's what we try to do, but you get kind of mixed results.
1: It's all connected.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: So if bakers are really passionate about looking at more sustainable agriculture that requires lower inputs, you know, building that skill set around using flowers that have lower protein content allows the farmer to actually farm differently.
2: I think that's exactly right. Colette. Like some of it's going to be inherent through different wheat varieties. Some are more prone to have higher proteins um, naturally others less but yeah you're exactly right and this is why this full circle stuff is so cool because you know historically generally we are just all operating on our own plane the farmers the millers and the bakers and there's so little communication between the three and they kind of loop this all together it's it's fascinating it's it's really cool to like go talk about soil health and wheat varieties with tanner <laughs> Loop it all in it's pretty neat
1: It sounds like your bread is really, really popular with your customers. Do you have a plan for growth and making 100 to 150 loaves a day? I imagine once one Atkinson store has your bread, there might be a couple other that are knocking at the door. What are your plans or your vision for scaling?
3: Yeah, I think the plan is just to keep growing and producing as much as I physically can for as long as I can, at least on my own. But I think there's definitely, as we're seeing already, you know, three months in, four months in, like there is tremendous opportunity for growth. And I think like Brett said, there's a big demand for good bread, you know, and not only good bread, but bread that's being made with good flour. And I think that's kind of a difficult thing to find in a lot of places, but Yeah, I mean, I think we just are going to keep kind of growing with the demand and hopefully meeting those expectations. But yeah, from what I've seen so far, I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon. If anything, it's just going to keep growing.
2: We haven't done any of this yet, but we're hoping to at some point sooner rather than later add on some mill tours and then also some baking classes. So I think that's something that will be a really fun addition because we get a lot of requests and it's just a matter of time management, trying to figure out how to get everything done that we need to get done. But I do have the intention of adding on some mill tours that would conclude with some of Tanner's fresh bread. And then also he and I have kind of batted around the idea of posting some baking classes out of the shop at some point. So I think uh, if, when, the, when the time's right, we'll, we'll put that on Instagram.
1: Awesome.
2: Tanner, is that fair enough to say about the baking class and the mill the tours?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really excited about that uh, aspect of things or that idea. I think, you know, bread baking is obviously something I'm very passionate about. And it's something I've always wanted the opportunity to share with other people or teach other people. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to do some baking classes for professionals throughout my career. And I think they're you know, they're really fun and they're really informative. And I think especially when you're baking at home by yourself, you know, you kind of feel like you're in this silo. And so classes are really nice because it can expose you to different techniques or different approaches to baking that you maybe haven't really thought about. And so the idea of us being able to offer that experience, I think, is really cool. I think it will be great for prospective students in the sense that like so many of us never really have had exposure to fresh flower or high extraction flour And so, you know, having the opportunity to kind of work with it in a group setting and really like do some troubleshooting and some education on it, I think is really cool. And I think people in that situation or in that setting will really get a chance to see how it performs compared to white flour And then also how much better that finished product is as a result of having all that flavor from the residual bran and germ. And then also all the like terroir and nuance from it being freshly milled flour until you really like work with it and taste the difference. It's not something that people really consider or think about. It's like Brett was saying before, like once you go that direction, you don't really want to go back. So yeah, I'm really excited about the idea of doing bread classes. I think it will be really fun.
1: Definitely on farm vertical integration. Thinking about that, Brett, what percentage of the flour, That you produce, do you anticipate it's going to go in the bakery and what will be your different accounts, your wholesale and retail accounts, or do you have a target?
2: I I don't know. I feel like this is all kind of fly by the seat of my pants and kind of letting the organic growth happen. Um, So I I don't really know, kind of taking it as it comes. But I did just get distribution through Charlie's Produce, which is brand new for me at the flour mill. So I think that's going to help a lot of my transportation distribution bottleneck issues. And I'm hopeful, too, because they are leaving with empty trucks six days a week from the Valley, from our Valley, going to the distribution center in Boise. We have been approached by some Boise potential customers that are eager to have Tanner's product. So I'm kind of hopeful, too, that we might be able to piggyback on the flour distribution through Charlie's Produce with baked goods from Tanner as well. But what that looks like, I, I don't know if that means that tanner needs more hands in the bakery possibly or we're figuring it out <laughs> we're piecing it together <laughs> very organic growth <laughs> but exciting it's all exciting i mean the demand is there so it's just a matter of how we manage it and what, how we want to shape it and you know tanner says as much as he can physically but i think it's also this balance of what feels good and what feels right and what's comfortable and what's rewarding and a decent economic return, you know, it's kind of balancing all of our all of our needs as a small business and as individuals too. And make sure Tan gets enough sleep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> for sure. I think it's super exciting that you were able to create a relationship with Charlie's Produce for distribution. And from a lot of our interviews and other work that I do in local and regional food systems, Charlie's has actually become a really important partner in creating local and regional food systems because for so many people that bottleneck is distribution and affordable transportation to get to market Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: so could you talk a little bit you mentioned like trucks going back empty and why that's important or why that's kind of an opportunity for you as
2: a flower producer yeah, um well we're uh in this rural valley that doesn't produce a lot but consumes plenty. And so Charlie's is coming in from my understanding six days a week to unload produce primarily um to markets and restaurants and then they leave empty and so I think I am a good fit for them because I'm I'm on their way out of the valley. I can load them up with flour to take to their distribution center in Boise. And from there, I can get it to a lot more customers that, you know, some, it's all at the very beginning, but uh, I, you know, there are a handful that I already know of that have been wanting it, but we couldn't quite figure out a cost-effective way to get it to them. Some have been just driving over here, you know, sometimes five hours, I think I mentioned this last time, to get the flour. So this will be more Um, economical, more convenient for them to do it through Charlie's. So yeah, all brand new and and super excited about it. But I I think there's also room to tack on some buns and loaves and stuff too.
0: From what I remember from earlier interviews, I think with you and with Brooke Lucy, you both had mentioned that Charlie's Produce was maybe hesitant at first to add flowers since it wasn't technically like a produce product. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this was a conversation that happened at one point. Do you know, is that just Charlie's produce realizing that there's a demand or how did you get in on that distribution system? Cause yeah, that's definitely one that a lot of people have mentioned either working with or hoping to work with.
2: Yeah, I think my understanding, too, is that they're, they're primarily produce, hence the name Um, I think with the pandemic, there've been some flower shortages and I've had customers even as recently as a week or two ago, say they're still having a hard time getting flour. So I think Charlie's might recognize that there's some difficulties with flower supplies and mobility of flowers. So they they might be more open to it. I had to do a a third party audit, which Charlie's wanted. And then they referred me to USDA and I talked to the USDA and they're like, no, we don't do grains. And said I think, thought it would be an easy thing to get through the ag- Department of Ag, and it didn't turn out to be. So it kind of, it, it, it's kind of funny because I, I think... It's not usually what, where they're working, where Charlie's produce is working. Um, and then this kind of, you know, back to like the mid-scale production idea, it's all, there's some challenges there. So I kind of I had to run around there for a little while. Nobody really knew what category I belonged in and what kind of audits or um, licenses I, I needed. They didn't even really seem to know. So we kind of navigated all that and did what we needed to do to make sure all the boxes were checked for the time being. To be frank, like it it, it wasn't easy. (laughs) It was quite arduous and expensive. And, um, you know, I threw that hoop and I hope that, you know, at some point in the future, we can tailor it to be something more applicable to what I'm doing rather than sort of this, um, you know, full food safety hazard plan and a third party audit, most of which didn't really feel like it applied to me or was making people any safer or less safe. It felt a little like squishing around peg through a square hole <laughs> because also kind of the nature of the area I'm working in but yeah just building that relationship with Charlie's is just, we'll, we'll see we'll see how it goes but I'm optimistic and excited about
1: it yeah you're the innovator that's paving the ground for systems and policies and procedures that don't exist and have to it, be created. it feels like it
0: sometimes <laughs> yeah
1: I think it's literally true So I think that you've just shared a lot of really great advice for bakers, um, whether they are home bakers or commercial bakers, about thinking about using local grains and hillside grain flour and being patient, trying things out, developing their skill set, not jumping to say, oh my gosh, it's the flour that's causing the problem. As you move forward, what advice might you have for people who are thinking about well I'm I'm growing the grain I'm milling the flour should I do an estate bakery?
2: Oh yeah I think it's so it's so neat and it's so gratifying and more than anything I feel like we are now in a time that's ripe for it where customers consumers have a awareness and an interest and it desire for these kind of products that we haven't had in the past. So I think this is the best time to be, and maybe it'll just continue to get better and better, but it's exciting to be operating in this kind of climate with the customer interest that we haven't seen in the past. And in the past, I mean, I mean like over my lifetime, like I, I don't think my parents could have done this with quite the same audience that we're doing it now.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's been interesting talking to a couple other bakeries on this season that have been using fresh milled local flour. They like just weren't as receptive to this local flour, this more intentional process with sourdough. They just like weren't ready. So I think we're definitely getting to the point where more communities are prioritizing local food and higher quality bread. I think it is exciting to see that I think that's only gonna become more prevalent. Totally. And ingredients matter, right? The demand
2: for fresh products is, is increasing, but getting fresh ingredients into those fresh products. Like I, I love to say that fresh bread is better with fresh flour. Like fresh bread's one thing, fresh pasta is one thing. But if you have fresh flour in those products, it's a game changer. And I think it's something once you try you don't really want to go back.
1: <laughs> I agree. I think that people, consumers are learning that bread's not just bread. Bread is exciting and it's different and that it's got flavor and that it's not something to disregard essentially And that's really exciting for me. And I think it's really exciting for our region that is such a big grain growing region, the possibilities that are out there for farmers and for having local mills and local bakeries and new collaborations. And I'm also really excited that there are existing businesses like Charlie's that are willing to get in the game and do some things that are different to really help build this sector. And I think about Charlie's and, you know, they are about fresh produce, but now they can be about fresh grain, about fresh flour. It's the same concept, but we haven't really talked about it in the past and we haven't experienced it. And that's all changing.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: Tanner, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is something that you would like to share as a baker working Really on the cutting edge of this frontier of
3: fresh flour and local baking. I guess for me, looking at kind of the history of bread, it feels like a renaissance of sorts in the sense that 14,000 years. And it really wasn't up until the industrial era that you could even just go to the store and buy a bag of flour You know, and so I think what bread is doing with wholesale grain and this kind of resurgence in locally milled fresh flour, it feels to me like we're kind of getting back in touch with our roots a little bit. And with that bread making tradition that's been, you know, a part of human history and civilization for thousands of years and our food systems as a whole are so decentralized that it's projects like this, I think, that are going to slowly, hopefully push things in a better direction. You know, like Brett was saying, it it just makes better bread. And so from a consumer standpoint, if you can support a local bakery or a local mill instead of buying the same processed bread or the same commodity flour that you usually buy, then I think that's a step in the right direction. And I think bread is something that's often overlooked. You know, we've learned to put a lot of emphasis on organic produce and we think of that as fruits and vegetables. And then things like flour and grain are completely overlooked or most often overlooked. And so, yeah, I think it's nice to have access to it when and where you have it. But I think it's also it's cool for people to kind of see that process and realize like, oh, yeah, my flour does actually come from somewhere and where it comes from matters it's refreshing for me having been a baker for 10 years. And really this is the first time that I've ever actually had access to freshly milled flour. And it is a game changer, you know, not only from a baking standpoint, but also from a environmental standpoint and a sustainability standpoint.
1: So (laughs) I realized we didn't ask you this question at the beginning. Is there a different name for the bakery than Hillside grain or is it Hillside grain? I
0: didn't even think about that.
1: (laughs) Because our last question is, where can our listeners find you? (laughs) And we (laughs) talked about where you're selling to, but we didn't even talk about the name of your bakery.
2: We didn't stray too far out. We call it Hillside Bread, and the idea is trying to make it very explicit to the customer that it's, hillside ranch hillside grain hillside bread you know that's we're all (laughs) all (laughs) under the same roof so the transparency is explicit in the name so hillside bread (laughs) excellent
1: so everyone that's our all of our listeners look for hillside bread when you're in sun valley or soon to be looking for that in boise and I really want to thank both of you, Tanner and Brett, for being on today and wrapping up our Field to flower season with this exciting news about your bakery and the growth. I look forward to watching your business grow and being able to taste some of this fantastic bread in the near future. Thank you,
0: Colette. Thank you, Allie. This is awesome. It's fun talking to you guys. For updates on this podcast series and regional artisan grain events, follow Inland Northwest Artisan Grains on Facebook and Idaho Foodworks on Instagram. Our guest profiles and show notes are posted on our website inwartisangrains.org. New podcast episodes are released every two weeks. After each episode, we would love for you to leave us a review and tell us how we are doing.
1: We value your feedback suggestions for future Artisan Grain podcast guests are always welcome. Make sure that you don't miss an episode of the new season by following or subscribing to our podcast on your favorite platform. You can find the Inland Northwest Artisan Grains podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and other major podcasting platforms.